0: Previously, on Electric Bukaloo. Have you ever ridden a horse?
1: I think I've gone on a pony ride at a park once.
0: Did anyone tell you you could pick any horse you want?
1: No, it was whatever one was next.
0: This is Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, we'll be looking at Chapter 8. This is Brand's second POV chapter. This is the Brand Climbs Up, Brand Falls Down portion of the book. We'll be talking with Professor Jan Doolittle-Wilson, University of Tulsa. Get a double portion of Steve. We're almost 15 minutes of Steve during the climax of the first season. And a very special guest this week, a short snippet of my conversation with Bosming Aron. Hubbard. We'll do a full hour-long interview with Aaron next week about Tyrion's first POV chapter. Without further ado, here is Jan Doolittle-Wilson. I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked everyone, and sometimes this makes it into the recording and sometimes it doesn't. Okay. But I'd like to begin with the question of embodiment relative to what we're doing right now. So here's the question. Jan, what is your relationship to your own voice?
2: Relationship to my own voice. Wow. Yes. Well, my actually, my first thought when you said relationship to my own voice is how, especially I think in the last ten years, I have developed kind of a, a new sense of self, a new consciousness, and when you said the word embodiment. Um, this is something I think about a lot in my own work because it's mm-hmm. it's such a disability related question, right? Mm-hmm. So is disability something that is embodied? Is it something that is a kind of condition of, of the body or of the mind, or is it a social identity? Is it a right. political consciousness? Right. And I think it's both. So when I think about kind of finding my voice within that consciousness, you know, to to be a little personal for a moment. Um, I was born with disabilities. I've lived with disability my entire life, but I like to tell my students, I only became disabled in the last 10 years. And so when I say that, I mean, I was always aware that I had disabilities, but it wasn't until my daughter was diagnosed with autism Mm. uh, about 10 years ago that I started finding a disability community. Hmm. I started thinking about disability as an identity, uh, as a collective. I kind of found others within the disability community and started thinking about disability as, again, a state of mind, as opposed to something that is solely embodied. So it wasn't my body or my mind that changed Hmm. necessarily. It was my relationship to my body and to my mind. So I guess when I think about what is my relationship to my voice, that's the first thing that occurred to me. I'm not sure if that's really what you're asking. Um, I guess that's how I would answer.
0: So then the question is, well, I'm just fascinated by the direction you took it. So for you, there's a difference between identity, sort of internal identity and social identity. And you've had to relate to your own disability in both of these ways. And I'm assuming that they overlap in some way.
2: They do. And I think one sort of changes the perception of the other. And Mm so, you know, again, it wasn't that I wasn't aware that I had disabilities. I was born (laughs) with disabilities, but Mm -hmm. it was in finding, you know, disability theory. It was in studying the history of disability. It was in connecting with others who also had a disability that I recognized that so much of what I experienced and so much of my embodied experience was not just something I experienced as an individual, that these Mm -hmm. things are collective things, that these things are political issues as well. Finding that political consciousness, thinking about disability as a social position, then in turn changed the way in which I perceived my own disabilities, my own embodied state. And so the two are inseparable now. And I think kind of going at this from an academic position or an academic lens, I think one misperception about disability is not only are the two separate, right? That disability is solely an embodied state or that disability consciousness comes solely from the embodied state. I think they're inseparable in the sense that we can't really ever have an understanding of the embodied state without recognizing that our views of that embodied state are shaped by the larger politics of disability. Hmm. So there can be no understanding of what disability even is apart from the society that gives it meaning, if that makes any sense.
0: It totally makes sense. And I, now I have to ask because of your job title, <laughs> uh, how does this, I feel like you could substitute gender. Yes. In place of disability, and that would also be a coherent statement.
2: Yes. Any kind of identity, right, that is socially constructed and that reinforces any kind of fact, you know, any kind of fact about the body or the mind, absolutely. Hmm. And, you know, to take us even further, what we think of as disability, how we perceive ourselves, how others perceive us, is always intersected and shaped by our gender.
3: Right. So
2: how I experience disability as a white woman, Mm-hmm. is different from someone else's subject position, um, a person of color, um, or a person who is, is not female, sure. uh, a transgender person, right? It's always going to be shaped by a multitude of other factors. And that's a really or, important point to, it, to keep in mind as well.
0: All right. So this is my <laughs> sneaky way into the narrative, right? <laughs> sure. So, so, <laughs> so, Or socioeconomic. We meet various characters with various disabilities in Martin's world. Yes. And how they are able to function within the society is is in many ways predetermined by their socioeconomic status.
2: And that's a point that the books and even the show does make explicit at times, right? One of my favorite lines is when Tyrion says, if you're going to be a cripple, better to be a rich cripple. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. And how many times does Tyrion escape a terrible fate uh-huh. because he's able to throw money at the problem? Um, He's able you know, to he, throw money. He recognizes this.
0: He's able to throw money at it. He's able to throw a voice at it that has has had the benefit of an elite education. Absolutely um,
2: right. There's a, a great scene in the first book where he is on his way to the wall with Jon Snow and, mm. and uh, the brothers. And John looks at him and says, why do you read so much? Do you remember mm. this scene? And, and Tyrion says, I love well, scene. look at me. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> do you what... <laughs>
2: see what I look like? Um, I have to know things because that's my power. Yes. I don't have strength. I don't have uh, the privilege of uh, being considered a, you know, able-bodied person. Right? Um, I have wealth, thank goodness. Um, but I, I read because... I know things. I drink and I know things, I right? That's where Tehring's strength comes That's from. right. And time and time and time again, it's it's the combination of those two things. His ability, his privilege of having an education, hmm. his privilege of being able to have the leisure time to read when he wants to read, and his tremendous privilege that comes with having wealth. You know, it's really the intersection of those two things that right. gets him out of tons of trouble again and again and again. And you know, he's he's quite aware of that and uses that beautifully to his advantage. I mean, Tyrion is, I think we all agree, Tyrion is a fascinating character, one of my favorite characters in the entire series.
0: Well, and, and such you've a, a complex little person character. Who's the center, yes.
2: He's the center of the narrative. How often does that happen in yeah. literature?
0: Yeah, that's right. And you know what? I mean, this is so interesting. Okay. I think that <laughs> I think I should do a synopsis of this chapter. But we could we could talk about Tyrion all day long. We um, could. Okay. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a synopsis of well, first I should say, so I have it recorded that I've said it, that today we are covering Brand's second POV chapter. This is chapter eight. Correct. Okay, so Here's my synopsis. Does it annoy
2: you that George R. R. Martin does not number his chapters? It it's does.
0: <laughs> it does. However, we live in a world where there's this massive hive mind online. And so if you do a little search, people will have done that work for you.
2: <laughs> I have found those people. <laughs> right. But I've actually gone through my copies and just written out the number for each chapter because I find it so incredibly annoying not to have that at my fingertips. <laughs>
0: okay Uh. all right so here's what we'll do i'll do a synopsis and then jan what we can do is we can fill in any gaps that i've missed in our conversation we begin with bran who is really exploring the grounds of winterfell in fact this chapter really gives us our best window into what winterfell is like especially what it's like for a seven-year-old boy and bran is been he's been told to say his goodbyes because he's planning on leaving for the south. He's reflecting on the different people who have been visiting Winterfell and the hunting party that's left and he goes to the stable to say goodbye to goodbye to a few people and he sees the pony that he's going to leave behind and he just starts breaks down into tears but of course He's at that age where, as a boy, you don't want other people to see you crying. And so he runs to the godswood.
2: He's and almost he, a man grown. How yes. often does he say that?
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he's almost a man grown. So, of course, you, you run to the godswood to, to cry by yourself. And uh, he's, he's got his wolf with him, unnamed at this point. He decides he's going to do a little bit of climbing you get the sense that he's done this a thousand times and he just knows Winterfell just as well on the roofs as he does on the ground. He climbs over to this broken down tower and he hears voices and the voices turn out to be Jamie and Cersei Lannister. As the reader, I think that we recognize this maybe before Bran does, but Bran lowers himself down to see an argument to hear and see an argument between, the brother and sister and lovers. And he realizes that this is the queen. He doesn't know exactly what he's seen, but he...
2: I think he says they're wrestling.
0: Yes, they're wrestling. And he notices that they are kissing and then they notice him. He almost falls and Jamie helps him up to the ledge and a very very briefly questions the boy uh, before pushing him off to, to the rest of his story. Really? I mean, that push off the ledge is how the chapter ends and how his story begins. So that was a nice
2: summary, by the way, Anthony. Oh,
0: thank you. (laughs) Um, uh, Jan, I'm going to ask you, do you want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall we just climb the ladder of chaos?
2: All of the above? Um, I'd love to talk about brand. Um, All right. Well, this is I'd,
0: your yes, very good. Let's I have talk about the, the brand
2: chapter, so I'm ready to go with brand.
0: Let's do it. All right. So tell me about brand.
2: So Bran is interesting, and I'm I'm trying to separate book brand from show brand,
3: mm-hmm. which
2: is somewhat difficult to do given that we just wrapped up. You know, that the last season of the show, Mm -hmm. Uh, what was that last summer?
0: Yeah. And what a different character he was
2: toward the end of that show, right? And it's, I'm, of course, like everyone burning with curiosity to see if, you know, George will finish these books and where he'll take this character. But Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the books, anyway, Bran is still in the cave. He is still getting his lessons from the Three-Eyed Crow. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we suspect Jojen is still alive. I know there's some fan opinion about whether um, he's he's actually dead at this point. Have you heard that fan theory that,
0: Yes. In uh, fact, some people have speculated that they used Jojin to create some sort of psychedelic paste for yes, branding. The Jojen
2: paste, they call it. I stumbled <laughs> on this about a year ago and I was fascinated by the theory. Yeah. But and I reread the chapter and there's some evidence to suggest that that's what's happening. But
0: well, we haven't seen Jojen in a while, but we
2: haven't seen Jojen in a right. while. Yeah. And we know that he, of course, he dies in the show, but is still very much alive, we think in the books. Mm. Um, At least it's not explicitly stated that he's dead, but um, going back to to where you ended with your synopsis, that it's so interesting that when he falls from the tower, that is where his storyline begins. And Mm. I think there are some positive aspects to that. And I think there are also some negative aspects to that. So on the one hand, it's interesting because for a lot of characters who become disabled, that's the end of their storyline. Um, you know typically in literature, if a character becomes disabled, they're either miraculously healed. Ah. they are they die, uh, they're right. written off, or yeah. you just never hear from them again. And Brand continues to be a point of view character. This is when Brand kind of begins his journey as one of the heroes of the story, a boy with paralysis. and again, how often does this happen where you have a centering? of not just a character like Tyrion, who was born with disability, yeah. but you have some of your major characters like Bran, of course, like Jamie, who yeah. have acquired disabilities. Uh, they start out, especially, I think, in Jamie's case, he doesn't acquire his disability till book three.
3: That's right. Um, That's and right.
2: he's you know he's set up as a villain, of course, at the beginning of the story, and takes on a much more complex story arc, but... These are characters that continue to be important. And in fact, their importance is magnified once they become disabled. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, that's incredibly interesting and important, the centering of disability in ways that are really not comparable in other forms of uh, of media, in, in other types of literature, and even in fantasy.
0: Yeah, and these um, characters make choices that drive the narrative that they wouldn't have made otherwise. Uh, they, they make these choices in a relationship to their own disability, and we could imagine that they would have made different choices without them.
2: And that's interesting. I think what you said is, is really interesting. I call characters with acquired disabilities border crossers. Hmm. And by that I mean they have experienced both the privileges of being able-bodied, so-called, hmm. And they've also then experienced what it's like to be disabled. And so they're able to take that social location, knowing what it's like to have the privileges and understanding then once they become disabled, that that is a form of privilege. It's now a recognized form of privilege to be able-bodied mm. and all of the kind of social constructs that go with that. And so characters like Bran to a certain extent, I think much more so with Tyrion, um, much more so with Jamie are now in a position, and again, being the center of the narrative, they're now in a position where the reader takes on their point of view, right? These are all point of view characters. Yeah. And then they become vehicles for criticizing their terrible treatment by a world that casts out (laughs) those Mm -hmm. with especially visible physical disabilities. They're Mm -hmm. written off. They are mocked. They are lesser than. And there's a, a great scene, not to get off on a Jamie tangent, but- Um, when Jamie, his hand is first amputated and he is kind of lying apart from uh, his captors and he hears them laughing and mocking him and he cries and thinks, now I know what Tyrion felt all Hmm. those years when they mocked him. Hmm. So it's the border crossers like Bran. The other thing I find interesting about Bran is, yes, the paralysis begins his story arc. Again, I think that's somewhat problematic in the sense of, there are times where Bran is important to the story only
3: because
2: of his disability. Mm -hmm. At the same time though, Bran retains the same kind of flaws uh, as any person. He doesn't, he's not transformed into kind of this saintly child, this kind of Dickensian trope. Hmm. Um, He doesn't take on this kind of special kindness or empathy once he becomes disabled, he, like I think a lot of people with acquired disabilities, he mourns his old life.
3: Yeah,
2: He struggles with this change in form and function, understandably, especially because he's seven when it happens. You know, chapter after chapter, he longs to ride his horse. Yeah. He longs to be playing in the yard with Rickon. Um, He wants things to go back to the way they were. And that's a kind of mourning that you really, it gets lesser, but it's a kind of mourning that you see up until really the end of, you know, the last book. Hmm. And I think that's very true to life. Uh, He's not suddenly transformed, you know, simply because he has a disability. Of course he mourns his old life. Of course he wants things to be the way, the way they were. And then eventually starts to adapt to his new circumstances.
0: So I want to read this paragraph. And I think what it does is, I think it showcases how great a writer Martin can be. And it also showcases how important Brand's ability to climb was for his, his identity. So here it goes. He liked how it felt too, pulling himself up a wall stone by stone, fingers and toes digging hard into the small crevices in between. He always took off his boots and went barefoot when he climbed. It made him feel as if he had four hands instead of two. He liked the deep, sweet ache in the muscles afterwards. He liked the way that the air tasted way up high, sweet and cold as a winter peach. He liked the birds, the crows in the broken tower, the tiny little sparrows that nested in cracks in between the stones, the ancient owl that slept in the dusty loft among the old armory. Bran knew them all. And I love that. I just love that because this is a character that I would be really invested in. Like, I, like, I've never been a climber. I don't know what it's like to climb. But I read that and I think, I'm really interested in this character. This character yes. sees the world so much differently than I would. But I want to hear more about him. And I want to see the world more through his eyes. Because he's able to give, like, literally a bird's eye view of, of Winterfell and
2: and that's a position he continues to carry just from a different yes, vantage point which i right. think i love how you read that passage because you're right even before his paralysis brand gives us a view of the world that no other character can yes and then he carries that further of course we get his view of the world through his direwolf and we get uh-huh. his view of the world of course through the ravens that he occupies um, and through Hodor, which I hope we will get to, because I think that's deeply problematic, but he does give us this, this vantage point that we simply don't get from other characters.
0: Yeah. And I think that that passage allows us to see what Bran, what Bran has lost. Yes. Um, yes. and, and, and exactly why he continues to mourn the loss so deeply, even, you know, even in you know books three and four, he's still mourning the loss.
2: Right, he is very much. And going back and rereading those chapters, I was really struck by that that scene that that mourning of that that loss really mm-hmm. is carried through to the fifth book. You know, even when he's in the cave and he's learning to do these really fantastical things, uh, even when he can inhabit the body of the ravens and fly, um, he even at one point there's a, a little passage in the last book where he remarks to himself, "Well, maybe this is almost as good as being a knight."
3: right so he still
2: has that in the back of his mind still um Mm -hmm. is is mourning that lost dream of of being a knight
0: yeah he that's what he wanted to do and uh that that was his dream he wanted to be a member of the king's guard and this is something that he is that's stolen from him so abruptly
2: and so cruelly
0: so cruelly by a member of the, by a member right. of the Kings car <laughs> right? Um, and so this, I think that that's why I said before that the decisions that Bran makes are informed by his disability because unless he has this desire to learn to fly, and he has to go north beyond the Wall to, because he believes that's where he'll meet the Three Eyed Crow and he'll be able to learn to fly there. Unless that's a problem for him, he's probably going to go south and try to become a knight or be one of a a, a bannerman of, of his brother or something like that. It's not really something that drives him otherwise. Right. I am going to list a number of notable introductions. So we're still early in the book. So there's going to be a few of these. Okay. So here's a few words we hear for the first time. All right. So we meet the word Kingsguard. Dragon Knight. We hear of Barristan the Bold, Brand. Oh, yes. Bra- yeah, it's like Brand's idol, like his the celebrity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes.
3: right?
0: He notes that Jamie looks like a knight in his stories and that the other two knights that have visited Winterfell, eh, they, they they're not much to look at.
3: <laughs> right.
0: But Jamie really looks the part of a knight. We meet Hodor for the first time. Okay. Not necessarily meet him, but we hear tell of him. Right. And then we also hear the first mention of Littlefinger. So That's right. those are all notable introductions in this chapter. Um, But I was wondering, let's talk more about Hodor. Okay. So Hodor is interesting in that, I don't know why, why do I feel so invested in Hodor? He's, he, I mean, he really only has one line. Right. Uh, And, could be such a one-dimensional character and did yet, you read the books before you watched the show well i started watching the show i watched the first three episodes and then i got myself a copy of the first book and i pretty much devoured all of the books <laughs> concurrently um so the question is when did i first meet hodor probably on the screen yeah okay yeah. The why? reason
2: I asked that question is because I think the actor, um, Karen, what, what's the actor's name who plays Hodor? Um,
0: I wish I could remember. I don't remember.
2: He. I've read interviews with him where he's stated, you know, there's not a lot to go on with Hodor's character when you read the books. <laughs> he is a one word character. <laughs> yeah. And so he really practiced with the dialect coach about how to say Hodor with different inflections to give That's the character so different great. expressions and different You know, when I say Hodor this way, I'm conveying this emotion or or this feeling. And I thought he did such a brilliant job. So I think for me, anyway, I encountered the show at least the first three seasons um, before I started reading the books. Mm. And so I already had that actor in my head, of course, you know, when I started reading. And and then, of course, if you're a show watcher, you know what happens to Hodor in the show. And so he's a, I think he's a very sympathetic character. Um, I think that what happens to Hodor, you know, he is literally Bran's prosthesis. (laughs) That's pretty much his function, especially in the book version, um, where he first is the vehicle by which Bran is able to regain some mobility, um, you know, being carried around by Hodor first in his arms and then in the little wicker basket. And then of course we know that Bran wargs into Hodor
0: yes.
2: in a very violative way, uh, non-consensually.
0: Um, mm-hmm. an
2: act that terrifies
3: Hodor.
0: Yeah, Hodor is like he feel Hodor's like a little like um like balled up like a little child. He's in the he's in a corner of his own mind, not knowing yes.
2: what to do. That's tough to read. That's it's really it's yeah. it's almost worse to read it than to see it on the show because yes. in the book version you're able to connect to Hodor's actual feelings about that because we hear it from Bran's point of view and brand knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that this is a violative act. He knows that, as you mentioned, you know, Hodor is literally balled up, frightened. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. has become someone who is abused.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh
2: Bran has become the abuser, which yeah. again adds an extra layer you know, to Bran's character makes him more complex, but, you know, Bran is fully aware of what he's doing and continues to do it because Hodor is the only means by which he can regain, you know, some of that freedom of movement that he mm. lost.
0: So I was just re- reading that passage recently in Storm of Swords and the Bran chapters leading up to that chapter are really interesting because Bran almost uses Hodor's emotional states at, as a mirror for himself. Mm,
3: yeah. So
0: he, what he does is every now and again, Hodor will say something and he'll say it with an inflection that really communicates with Bran's feelings. So what, Bran as, as the POV character will say, Hodor was probably afraid at that moment. So he's reading Hodor's sort of emotional state, but he's also projecting his own emotional state onto Hodor. Mm. And so th- there's this blurry line already in between Brand's sense of emotional well-being and Hodor's sense of emotional well-being. And these lines are blurring in a way. Right. And the analog here is with Summer, who he's also blurring lines with.
2: I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that warging connection. Where, you know, Jojen at one point says to Bran, you are Summer and Summer is you. Yes. And that's a connection that you have because you're able to actually enter Summer's mind. He connects to you as well. And you do get that sense with Hodor as well. And I, I, started again. I was, I want, wanted to reread some of those chapters where he hmm. does warg into Hodor.
3: Mm-hmm. As
2: far as I can tell, in the book version, only Bran and Hodor are aware that Bran is doing this. Um, yeah, he he's kind of very much wants of it. to keep it. He, he knows what he's doing, right? He yeah. knows it's violative, and he doesn't want anyone to know, Mira in particular.
0: You know, those chapters are interesting to me because. Bran is trying to, he's still trying to convince himself he's a man grown.
3: Yes. Uh, or he's
0: almost a man grown.
2: As he tells us constantly. <laughs> yes,
0: right, right. And so when he feels fear, he'll, he'll sort of sense fear on Hodor's face or in Hodor's inflection. And then he'll try to steel himself as if to think, yeah, but more is expected of me. You know, yes. the he's laying more on himself and yet he he also knows simultaneously that he's still a kid and he still feels like a kid. He still right. feels the, the same fear that a kid should feel, but he's trying to convince himself that he's someone else.
2: And do you think there's something to the idea too that, you know, this gets a little bit into the kind of super crip trope that I also was hoping we would talk about a little bit, but um, the idea that most people who have warging power can only warg into animals. Right. And yet Bran is able to warg into Hodor, which I think suggests two things. One is that Bran is exceptional. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we know, especially from the show version, I suspect the books might take us there as well, that Bran will become the most powerful green seer ever. Mm-hmm. But it also suggests that Hodor's mind is exceptionally weak. And there's always this kind of unspecified cognitive disability that Hodor has in the book. In the show, we learn, you know, what happened to Hodor. But in the books for now, if you just stop at the last book, it's never really specified why Hodor only says Hodor.
3: Mm-hmm, right.
2: I remember before the Hold the Door episode came out, it was at the point where, you know, the, the show had gone past the books.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And there were all kinds of theories about what, you know, as most people put it, what's wrong with Hodor? You know, again, suggesting there was something wrong with him.
3: Uh-huh. Um,
2: was it a speech impediment? Was it, was it aphasia? You know, what, what was going on with Hodor? So there were all kinds of theories, but I think most people agreed that the reason Bran was able to work into Hodor is because of those two things, right? Bran is powerful. Hodor is weak. And so it does tend to perpetuate this idea about what it means to have a cognitive disability at the same time, you know, Hodor's character does engender this tremendous amount of mm. sympathy for this character who really is being abused uh, by somebody who is, is quite you know cognizant of what he's doing. But I think you're right about that connection with that kind of um, brand being the age that he is and experiencing the emotions that he's experiencing and how that connects to Hodor, I think is, is really interesting what you're saying.
0: Well, and imagine... Bran is so complicated because when you're a kid, all you ever want to be is to be older and bigger, right? Right, right. <laughs> and and here, here he has the superpower where he can, for moments, be, be the biggest guy in the room. Right. And yet, and not only that, but he can experience for a moment the thing that he's lost, right? right. You know, the use of his legs. And okay, so that that complicates Bran. But then, in addition to that, the whole reason why Hodor has an, a disability in the first place, his whole identity—even I mean, it's not—it's not even his name. His whole identity has changed because Bran. If we buy this sort of time travel theory business, sort of, he works into Hodor in this time time loop sort of way right. so that he actually causes Hodor's disability.
2: And that's what's also interesting. I, again, I, I'm curious to see where, you know, George will take that if he ever finishes the books. Yeah. But um, if you think about show Hodor, and, and, and certainly this is true of book Hodor as well, but especially show Hodor, he really is this example of, I keep calling him brands prosthesis. He's, he's an example of narrative prosthesis. Which simply suggests that, you know, most disabled characters, whether it's literature, film, television, whatever, media, they're rarely in the story for their own right. They're rarely in the story to serve their own purposes. They are almost always in the story to serve the narrative arc of the so-called main character.
0: Yeah, they're a guide or yeah, they're, a they're supporting are They're simply there role, to reflect
2: yeah. something, right, about mm-hmm. the main character. And so when you think about the Hold the Door, when you think about what happens to Hodor and what we learn, mm. um, you know, Hodor has this disability because of what Bran did he's even kind of more stripped of his own autonomy. He actually becomes the agent of someone else's destiny because mm-hmm. his sole purpose is to wait for that fateful day in the future when he'll hold the door and save brand <laughs> by sacrificing him. He's almost like a placeholder, you know, waiting for that day when he knows that's his job, his entire name yeah. means hold the door, hold the door for whom? Well, for brand, you know, yeah. so brand can escape by him sacrificing himself. So, You know, his whatever you want to call it, his neurological disorder, his Mm -hmm. cognitive disability, it doesn't really communicate any meaningful knowledge about disability itself. It merely serves as this plot point for other more important aspects of the story. Um, And that's one thing that's that's deeply problematic. I think about that character and about his relationship with Bran.
0: It's yes. And I I I really haven't given this a whole lot of thought till till just now. But according to Martin, the hold the door part of the narrative was indeed part of the notes that he gave the showrunners.
2: Right. I'd heard that.
0: So that should land itself in the books. Martin is the type of author who doesn't, he's almost more interested in what happens after the climactic moment than the moment itself. He wants to talk about, okay, now this kid fell out the window. Now what's it going to be like? Uh, Or, okay, here's a dwarf in a fantasy narrative. What would it really be like for a dwarf in a fantasy narrative? He likes to play with what happens where other stories usually end. Exactly. And so I, boy, I I sure hope that we don't leave Hodor up north. I hope that Hodor Um, gets to have a life beyond hold the door.
3: I
2: agree. And I think you're right. You know, there's so many things we could parse out in terms of Show differences and book differences, Mm -hmm. and I know that things are done in the show for. I mean, that's a visual medium, so there are certain things that are done, and I do think that the show version does play into. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that tropes serve no useful purpose. You know, most of the classes that I teach deal with how we can move beyond just pointing out where the tropes exist to looking at how the tropes teach us something useful about Mm. representations of disability, how they differ from actual, you know, lived disability experiences and so on and so forth. But one thing I did notice in going back through the brand chapters is I had so convinced myself it was in the books because he says it in the show several times where in the show version, brand tells Rob, he would rather be dead. Yeah. Do You remember he says, I don't want to live this way. I'd rather be dead. That line never appears in the book version. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's this morning of, you know, what he has lost and he still wants to be a knight. He still wants to be able to run and climb but we never get the sense in the book version that he'd rather be dead. And that's an old tired trope mm-hmm. that we see again and again and again, where going to your point, when someone is disabled, typically, again, either they're cured or they die because the thinking is a life with disability is not worth living.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: how many times have we seen this played out in the visual, you know, media? Mm-hmm. Um What we do I could give you a dozen examples off the top of my head, but at least that's not perpetrated in the books the way in which we see it in the show.
0: Yes. What we do have in the book, and this relates to that trope, is in the next chapter, Jamie's talking with Tyrion and saying, Oh geez, the gods should have been merciful and just and just allowed the boy to die. I would much give me a swift death rather than living on as a grotesque.
3: Yes. And Tyrion.
0: It says
2: this to Tyrion.
0: <laughs> yes, and Tyrion, of course, I, man, I just love Tyrion. Tyrion says, uh, on behalf of the, speaking on yes. behalf of the grotesques, Lovenous. I would beg to differ. Death is so final, whereas life has so much possibility.
3: Yes,
2: doesn't Tyrion I, have just the best lines? I love you? that scene, and I love so many things. But another scene that comes quickly, another. it's a brand point of view chapter in the first book where Tyrion comes back to Winterfell to visit to bring his saddle design you know he's promised John that he will give the saddle design to Bran and he gives this wonderful line which is really reflective of the social model of disability right which is it's not that the person has to change it's that we have to adapt the environment to fit the person and so his great line about how you have to fit the saddle to the rider And then you can ride like anyone else. And that's, that's the social model. The idea that, you know, disability can, of course, cause discomfort. It can cause pain in some cases. There are a lot of challenges associated with disability, a lot of disabilities, but most of what we think of as disabling is actually caused by the environment is caused by a lack of accommodation. It's caused by stigmatizing attitudes it's caused by lack of access. Mm-hmm. And I, that's why I just so appreciate and love not only Tyrion as a character, but that particular line, uh, which has been quoted endlessly by those of us in the disability community because we appreciate it so much.
0: Now, you mentioned um, Super Crip before. Yes. Can you say more about that?
2: Yeah. So it's one of the most prominent tropes that we see again and again in popular media. It's basically the idea that characters who either are born with a disability or become disabled develop some sort of compensatory, you know, mystical superpower mm. usually as a result of their disability.
0: Right. So like blindness relates yes. to sort of foresight. Yes. In in a counterintuitive sort of way.
2: Yes, you see this a lot with autistic characters mm. um, mm-hmm. where it's not enough for them just to be autistic and be a regular person. They have to be a super genius.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, they
2: mm-hmm. have to have some kind of power because I think what, what the trope suggests is that disability in and of itself is not worthy. <laughs> mm-hmm. That you can't just be disabled. Brand just can't be a regular kid who happens to have a disability. Mm. You know, one who rediscovers joy and meaning in life with the paralyzed body his character arc indicates that life as a disabled person has to take on some sort of special purpose in order to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so by developing these kind of magical exceptional abilities, he can transcend the so-called deficits of his impairment and demonstrate that he's worthy. Sure. Not because he's a person, but because he has these abilities. And there are many times I think that at least with brands story arc, it does fall into that trope. Yeah. The thing that I find so interesting about Game of Thrones and why I wanted to read it initially, I came to it because my students kept telling me, oh, you do disability theory and you haven't read Game of Thrones? That's oh, ridiculous. You've got to read Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I came at it through a disability lens. And right. you know what it is. When you get a certain lens on, you can't ever take it off. <laughs> you see your entire world through that lens. So I see disability everywhere. Yeah. But at the same time, I also so appreciate the times where George... Disrupts tropes and disrupts yeah. the conventions of fantasy. literature Well, and
0: behavior. he's really good at that part of it. I mean, gosh, he, he is just... so
2: good at that part.
0: All right, so want to finish the you. books,
2: Anthony? What is your theory? <laughs> 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 he says he's writing the book. He's working on the the next book. He's been quarantined. Yes, and he has lots of time now. So let's hope.
0: I go back and forth. I have optimistic days and I have pessimistic days.
2: Yeah. Don't Sometimes
0: I think he has to do it. He has to, he has to finish these things. And the reason why this is very cynical to say, but the reason why is that there are book contracts, and these were, book yeah. contracts are worth millions of dollars.
3: Right.
0: And so the the publisher is not going to allow these books not to be written, even if they are written at some later date. That said, there are times when I think. Yeah, it's been too long. <laughs> it's mm. been I, I I've been burned once once too many times. <laughs> I I wanna every every time you know winter rolls around, I want to read the next book. And right. it, it doesn't happen. It never comes to fruition. I but keep I've,
2: thinking that maybe the fan ire over uh-huh. the last season in particular might spur him on to write the record you know, that maybe that will be new incentive for him to say, okay, this is the story as it was supposed to be, or this is the story in my hands. Anyway, I, I don't, I'm like you, I go back and forth on on allowing myself Uh to hope and then thinking, you know what, let it go. (laughs) (laughs) There are more important things in the world happening right now, I guess.
0: Before I let you go, anything else about this chapter that struck you as important or just something that you thought was really interesting?
2: Mm-hmm. We covered most of what I wanted to about Bran. The only little thing is Bran the Broken. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was interesting how, again, in rereading the books, that is a title that Bran actually gives himself oh, um, mentally. You know, there was so much criticism when, you know, the, the episodes aired the last season of the show where Tyrion calls him Bran the Broken. That becomes his title as king. Hmm. And when you go back and reread the books, it's something Bran actually thinks about himself. He calls himself Bran the Broken. And I thought that was so interesting. And how I was, speaking only for myself, I was not at all offended by the title Bran the Broken because Hmm. it places disability up front. it's not given some kind of cute euphemism, right? It's not glossed over. Let's pretend he's not disabled, right? Which is extremely stigmatizing when it comes to disability identity. It suggests that disability is something that we have to hide that disability is something that is shameful. Um, I think calling him brand the broken is very consistent with what Tyrion does himself, right? uh, which is take titles and slurs and, things that are meant to be derogatory and deploying them as forms of power, uh, claiming yeah, use them it as your as, armor.
3: right? Yeah.
2: And then no one can hurt you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the other great Tyrion line I love though, you know, talking about kind of reclaiming, um, you know, words that have been used to hurt you as kind of this ironic pride, you know, taking an ironic pride in these things is when, um, of course he calls Bran a cripple. Mm. <laughs> and Bran's very offended, right? I'm not a cripple. And do you remember Tyrion's response?
0: Oh, yeah. He says, oh, <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> great news that I'm, I'm, I'm not a, what does he say? I'm not a dwarf. <laughs> he says, then
2: I'm not a dwarf. My father will rejoice to hear it. <laughs> and so I just, I love that rejoinder. You know, I just love that. Let's uh, call it what it is. And let's right. use it as a mark of pride instead of trying to yeah, pretend yeah. it doesn't exist Huh. And so, you know, brand the broken is that very kind of in your face, you will confront disability with me. This is not uh-huh. something I want you to look away from. Um, there's a, a great line by Nancy Mayers is a wheelchair user. And she said, you know, she called herself a cripple or a crip. Um and put a lot of people off by using that word for herself. It made people very uncomfortable. And her line was always, maybe I want you to be uncomfortable.
3: Right. Maybe
2: I want you to think about disability in ways that you've never had to think about it before. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Again, Martin, in using these words and putting disability so front and center, forces us to confront not just disablement in ways that normally we wouldn't in, in the media that we consume, but forces us to see the world, from the point of view of these disabled characters which is why i just continue to so appreciate and love this story even when it does fall into some more dangerous tropes
0: well jan this has been so fun and
2: that was fast
0: i I feel like i feel like we should do this again
2: i would love to
0: um i
2: think there's a lot more to talk about
0: there's so much more to talk about
2: yeah when i first got your email i thought yes i i've turned down invitations to do podcasts before mainly just for time. But when I got yours, I thought, okay, I'm making the time for this one. Um, <laughs> one, because I love Game of Thrones and could talk about Game of Thrones yeah. and disability, you know, for weeks. But as you know, I'm a big fan of the Bald Move podcast. And when I first started really diving into Game of Thrones, I stumbled on that podcast and just couldn't mm-hmm. get enough of Aaron and Jim. Um, <laughs> know, so great. yeah, anytime, anytime you want to talk, um, Anthony, I will be here.
0: And now Steve and I cover The Pointy End, Episode 8 of Season 1. Steve? Yeah? For those who are listening at home, they may be interested to know that next we meet, we will be covering the last two episodes of the first season. So if anyone was listening along with us and doing a rewatch with us, it may be beneficial to them to know that next we talk, we will cover... Two episodes, not just one.
1: Yeah, and I will say that that this is this is going to be exciting for me because I watch these before we do this recording, and so if the impulse is to be like, well, I want to see what happens next because I can, I created a certain tension in my own uh, mm. home for this, so this will be this'll be rather exciting to do a back to back. Looking forward to it.
0: I like that. I like I like that a lot. Steve, we just watched the pointy end, episode eight, so we're getting down to it. We saw the undead, bro. We saw a white. Now, this is very good. I'm glad that we're here. We're finally at an episode where something that's sort of magical happens. Exactly. And it it took us till episode eight to see the return of one of these whites. Now, I'm going to help you out here because you're going to enrage people if you get this wrong. Okay. Okay, there's the White Walkers. Right. And uh, these guys are like ancient monsters who sleep for thousands of years or whatever. Right. Now, a White Walker or just an other, these, these guys have the power to raise the dead. Gotcha. To be sort of one of their, and their zombie thralls. hmm These we just call Whites. Okay. Right? Okay, so there's a difference between a White Walker and a White. And I'm right. going to save you a, an enormous amount of grief. Well, because
1: white walk white is an adjective in this regard. And white is a <clears throat> noun,
0: and they No, not the same. they're both nouns. White is spelled W-I-G-H-T. Gotcha. Okay. In the in the same way, it's another word for ghoul or whatever. All right. uh, anyway, so I, I, I'm I'm sure that you're. You're thrilled to know that. Information.
1: Well, I think it's important, right? I mean, like you said, I mean, at some point I'm going to have to uh, answer to some people.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you you will. Which a
1: is... pointy end. Still a bit of a, of like a whimsical title or a pretty uh, eventful and frightening episode.
0: Well, and pretty dark. I mean, it, the pointy end is taken from a dialogue between Jon and Arya where he's giving her the first lesson of swordplay. Right. Stick him with a pointy in. Yeah. I mean, and then she we, does. She yeah, sure does. She, she absolutely does. She absolutely does. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but the first four seasons of Game of Thrones, George Martin wrote one, or at least he got a credit for writing one of the episodes. Okay. And this is this is the episode of this oh, season okay. that he gets credit. So Martin said. In his commentary on this, that when Arya sticks little fat boy with the pointy end. Yes. There's supposed to be another beat of dialogue where the boy asks Arya to take it out. Uh. And And she does. And that's how he dies. And he said, I don't know why they took that part out. And I'm thinking, I know why they took it out. That's really dark. Yeah. It's a little bit of a whimsical title for a pretty dark
1: reality. Right. But I think that's a good comparison, right? Because that's when we, because we get introduced to this character with that kind of a, a whimsical conversation about sword fighting. And, and mm-hmm. so we, and we don't maybe realize at the time that, you know, she's young and so you pointing in, uh, but really you're training to get into a position to disembowel and
0: behead when the time comes. Yeah, I think there's something about sports that they, I once heard a psychologist say that in the same way that pornography is a way to rehearse sex, that sports is a way to rehearse war. Mm. And I think that, I mean, so, some. I'm sure it wasn't are, pornography to rehearse war. I, I think I've heard it differently. I, that, that's, I think that might be Freud. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but. Uh, you know, our sports are still pretty violent, but, you know, fencing, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room between the actual thing and what you're doing.
1: Right. I mean, it's, you're you're stabbing.
0: You're stabbing. And every, yeah, I don't know if about, about every kid, but, you know, any kid with a stick outside is going to play war. Right. Um In some way. So, Arya is rehearsing warfare this whole season, and now she gets to see what it looks like up close in person right
1: and interesting that it happens in the way that it does like her first ability to use it right I mean the gravity of what she's been training for happens immediately and there's really no time to even to mourn it at least in this in this episode
0: that's right it happens really quickly it's almost like she it's like a reflux for her and, right and then she doesn't really realize what she's done until needles in the kid's belly
1: right and then, she, I mean she's been training to a certain degree I mean to a very Uh,
0: yeah yeah every morning right so
1: so now her reflexes are are both right you know maybe she doesn't even realize that her reflexes are a defense and attack
0: right yeah now there's a lot of key roles for these child actors in this Mm. um i don't i tend to not be a big fan of child movies with child actors
1: i know you don't we've had this conversation you don't like children
0: really you don't like I don't remember this speak. conversation. What did I say?
1: Well, you you really disliked Moonrise Kingdom, yeah, because you don't like it when children speak with adult vernacular.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. In this case, well, I, of course you agree with. That I agree with it's myself. Your point, yes. yes. <laughs> I don't. I don't always agree with myself, but on this point, I do.
1: <laughs> this point, I am dead on.
0: I feel like I want to know. I don't. I, that's a good that's a good point because i really like wes anderson but it's i think it's difficult to write for children and i think it's difficult for children to deliver uh on the writing Mm -hmm. um how do you you feel about this i don't remember this conversation
1: well i think i had asked you how you felt about the fox and the hound i believe um Mm -hmm. and if you had the same level of disdain for when uh animals talk and, and I believe you kind of were like, ah, yeah, it's fine. And I'm like, well, all right, I feel like there are other issues here. And that's when I think I said that you hate children.
0: Animals, yeah, animals talking because, because is okay.
1: children do talk. And in fact, um, I would make the like, if you don't like the fact that the children are, are speaking like adults, I would say that children are merely their entire speech to a certain degree, and maybe even extending to adulthood, is really just an impression of adult speech.
0: It's a good point. And I will remind you that sometimes animals do talk. And I will remind you that you happen to like it when birds talk. Oh, I do. But you like it even better when they dance, apparently. Oh, man. Man, I love it
1: when birds dance. Dancing bird, <laughs> there's, man. There's nothing worse. I, s-
0: I believe the exact phrase to quote you was, "There's something about a dancing bird that's intoxicating."
1: Oh yeah, I'm just thinking about it right now, and I kind of lost track of what we were even doing. <laughs> yeah, when that bird, when, that, when any bird that does the side, to side, like it's this. When they keep the body still and the head goes back and forth, that's I'm like, yeah. That is, that it's is the
0: same reason why we like boy bands. It's it's the same move.
1: True. True. And they are they are flashy. They feel like they're in the feathered hair.
0: <laughs> All right. So uh, one of the big debates among the fans, and this debate raged for probably 10 years. Really love that
1: I'm just picking up on this, and everybody's like, everybody's settled these debates, yeah. and I'm just now stepping into it. Well, like,
0: no, you're going to step in, and you're going to enrage at least 10,000 people. Oh good. Either way, right?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, right.
0: So, uh, unless you give a, a non answer or something, it, you, what however you answer this next question is going to win you friends and enemies. All right. By your reading of this episode, is Serial Pharrell, Arya's dancing master, is he dead? Ooh. Yeah, that's uh <sighs>
1: Just in this, I say,
0: yes. You, sir, answered how I would answer. Okay. And now you're going to have to change your name. (laughs) That's fine. Because the people that like Serial Pharrell... Can I go with Carmine? (laughs) Carmine's a a very underrated name. (laughs)
1: Absolutely, it is. It's tough, and it suggests a certain lightness of foot.
0: Why 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 lightness of foot?
1: Well, Carmine Raguso from uh, Laverne & Shirley was quite the tap
0: dancer. I I didn't remember that. Yeah, the big ragu. I remember the big ragu. Clearly I have not seen Laverne & Shirley in a while. Okay. Well, well when
1: I start my own podcast, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to discuss the the fan.
0: You know what uh, what they should have done when Fonzie opened his auto shop? They should have brought in Carmine to be his second.
1: Mm, as opposed to Chachi.
0: Oh, absolutely. Carmine would be a great second. I mean, that—that that is the buddy show that I would watch. A Fonzie and the Big Ragoo.
1: Oh, well, man. That would have been a great spinoff, like the Father Dowling Mysteries or something.
0: You know, Carmine right, and, this, and the, yeah, right, the Big Ragoo and the Fonz. And this world has spinoffs. We know that already.
1: Plenty. Yes. Laverne and Shirley being the spinoff of Happy Days, and Joni loves Chachi, and of course Mork and Mindy.
0: So we're still in the same world. See, yeah. <sighs> why don't we? What would it take to make that happen? Now, I mean, Winkler's still out there. He's still doing good work.
1: And I think that'd be even better, not because then you really do fall into like the Father Dowling mystery murder she wrote. Because they're at, they're of that age.
0: <laughs> uh, all right, so Serial Pharrell. Yes. The argument in favor of Serial Pharrell having survived is that like with all television deaths, if you don't actually see the death on screen, right. then you can bring the character back later and you can yeah, just and, explain and, it away or whatever.
1: Sure, and you're listening at the time for the yell, the the gasp, something that suggests that he didn't make it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there, was that, there was that opportunity when she looks back. That's kind of what you were expecting. And then you mm-hmm. don't hear it and you're like, Oh, so there it, there is a, a palpable tension there right mm-hmm.
0: and this is an episode wherein drogo drops his weapons and still defeats the guy with the arek or whatever right so that's it's possible it's possible to uh, to just be faster and and beat the guy who's better armed yeah so tyrion's back with shaga yeah and uh <laughs> Tyr- <laughs> tyrion
1: yeah shaga why not I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, like, I just mentioned the name Carmine with glowing terms. So I'm not going to sit here and criticize Shaga as a name, but.
0: Shaga seems like someone I would have known growing up.
1: Yeah. These are all like, you know, JV football
0: nicknames. So, so yeah, the Stormcrows, they are certainly not Varsity, <laughs> but they get a shot. They get a shot in this episode to to play on the Varsity team. And so Tyrion gets Tyrion's good at talking his way out of certain death. That's kind of the theme. And the you know, at some point you you start I guess you could start to think this is getting old. This guy can't just talk his way out of everything.
1: Yeah, I think this is why I dig Tyrion because I feel like most of my growing up I would talk myself into problems and then talk myself out of those problems.
0: Yeah, if I think about you in high school I think of you as a Tyrion with several Shaga like friends. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's what I think. All right, let's talk about the Rob plot. So Rob decides he's going to call his banners, and he has to have a little confrontation with Great John. Yeah. What do you think about the What do you think of the name Great John? <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, it's. It's not bad. <laughs> I kind of feel like, if like. Sometimes we put diminutives on people's names, right? Right. Like Steve Z, or you know, little Jimmy for Jim. Right. Why can't we aggrandize a name like John and just make it Great John? Yeah, that's good. You, yeah, you, you could be Great Steve.
1: Yeah. I don't know any like cool Ted's. No. No, there's. <laughs> How many Ted's does one even know? I don't think you can know more than like one or two at tops.
0: So Ted could be like one of these names like Dick, where it's a certain age. Like if your name is Ted or Dick and you're under 70, you're pretty rare. Yeah. It could be a very generational name. Ted Kaczynski, Ted Bundy. Yeah. Both older gentlemen.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the only thing they have in common.
0: Does this mean that Ted Danson is a a mass murderer? Is that
1: I just I'm not saying he is, I'm just saying let's just let's just keep an eye on him.
0: <laughs> All right, so Rob gets challenged by the Great John.
1: Right. And then the and wolf the wolf does they, man, these wolves really come in handy.
0: They do. This was a very pro wolf episode. Yeah, yeah. A ghost is able to save Lord Mormont. All right. And Grey Wolf is able to win Great John. To, uh, to Rob's cause, I suppose.
1: See, I feel like the direwolves in this episode are to, to the Starks and Snow in this case as, uh, as the news is to Huey Lewis. Mm. I, I think okay. that Huey Lewis needs the news more than the news needs Huey Lewis.
0: Yeah, that's, you know what? That was true for a while and then it wasn't true. And now I think it's true again. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's how truth works.
0: All right. Let's talk about what's going on in uh, in Essos. All right. So Danny is Danny is witnessing the horror of war. Yeah. And she's not liking what she's seeing.
1: No. And she's seen some stuff.
0: She's yeah. She's seen it. She's I eaten guess. it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But now she's seeing the cost of what her conquest. It's the cost of her own conquest. Sure. She wants the Iron Throne. And it's got to get paid for some way. And you've hired a, a team of marauding barbarians to be your your army. Yeah. So Danny saves this person named Miri Mazdur. Mm-hmm. Sure. Who is a, uh, uh, yeah. she is the God's wife of a temple dedicated to the great shepherd. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And she's actually kind of an interesting character. We just meet her for the first time in this in this episode, yeah, but I think we're going to start to play with this question about how virtuous Danny really is I mean, so far in the story, Danny is pretty well a protagonist, right? yeah, but
1: I mean, she's already shown that she's she has lofty aspirations, and she'll magic shell, or she'll at least facilitate the magic shelling of her brother without, That's without, right. really, without blinking. That is not, so I'm going in, I mean, granted, you know, is he a bad person? Sure. Was he dangerous? Absolutely. Did he deserve to get magic shelled? I'm not really sure what the, you know, I don't know the rules of the land. I'm just a caveman. I don't know. But she was okay with it. I mean, regardless, there were other ways he could have gone, or they could have dealt with him.
0: Uh, well, it wasn't really her choice. But what she didn't even
1: blink. She didn't flinch. Like she
0: did thing. not flinch. She she might have even. I don't. I don't think she enjoyed it. But she she was almost like, this is better for me. I, I can look, see that this is better for me.
1: Look at the two situations. They the as they were going to uh, take the spoils of war, she stepped in to her you know at the risk of her own peril. Yeah. She stepped in and said, "This is not acceptable as far as I'm concerned." She did that for strangers. She didn't budge for her brother. So I, mm-hmm. I so yeah. I do I do see her as a protagonist, but I see her as the, there's clearly more more to this. There's look, man, this is the Game of Thrones we're talking about here. There is no rules on the back of the box.
3: You know what? I
0: this this entire I wrote two books about Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And I uh, took over this podcast, and this was all a big long con to get you to watch the show with me. (laughs) And at this moment, at this moment, the moment where you said, this is the Game of Thrones, man, there's no (laughs) rules on the back of the box. I feel like I win. I feel like this has all been worth it. (laughs) Uh, All right. All right, so I think I think we've covered some ground here, man.
1: I think we have. I'm looking forward to this uh, this finale here.
0: So next we talk. We're going to cover episodes nine and ten, which will bring us all the way to the end of the season, and uh, maybe we'll do a an extra long episode for that. I like it. I'm into it. Here's just a short clip of my longer conversation with Aaron, who'll be back next week to talk about chapter nine. In this little excerpt, we are talking about Tyrion and Jamie's narrative arcs. There's one thing, there's one constant that they both share. A cynicism for all of the pageantry and mythology around the realm, right? So, this, this, for notion, different reasons, too. Yeah, right. For different reasons, but this idea of this sort of nobility and a true knight, an honest knight, all of this business, they both have a, a really and a probably pretty well earned sense of cynicism about the way the world mm-hmm. really works.
4: Yeah. Well, and it's all for like, you know, like Jamie is jaded about what it means to be a knight because despite well, start with Tyrion. Tyrion's jaded about what it means to be a knight because those are things he can never be mm-hmm. um anyway. And he, as a smart, otherwise an, an intelligent upright individual, it wounds him that he can never be considered, you know, strong and just and like like his brother. But then Jamie is jaded because he is everything that a knight should be, and he tried to embody that, which led him to, you know, stab to death the Mad King. And for that, he is reviled, and his his honor is considered as as worthless as shit is. Um, So, like, you know, living... Whether those ideals are impossible to uphold because you're forever shut off of them because of the circumstances of your birth, or whether come to the realization that people value those things being paid lip service to more than they actually value those things put into practice, yeah, that's something that like Martin plays with the entire time. Like he like so many of those characters fall into those categories.
0: Yeah, Martin really likes morality forks. I call them.
4: Mm-hmm. He, he
0: likes mm-hmm. a, he likes a situation where like a character like Jamie. Who really wants to do well as a king's guard? He's put in a position where either he's going to have to be a Kinslayer and, and commit patricide. He's going to have to go kill his own father. Or he's mm-hmm. going to have to slay this king. And that makes him the slayer So he chooses one path of immorality rather than the other path of immorality. And he's just hoping that he can choose the right one. And live with mm. the consequences, and I think he does. Uh, Martin does that with a lot of characters. He puts this, these two horrible options in front of them. He hedges them in. So look, you only get to choose
4: one of these two, and they they're mm.
0: they're going to have different consequences. But um, you're gonna have to live with them.
4: Yeah, I also wonder like um. Martin in contact and, and building this world and constructing it from all these various moral forks, uh, which it essentially paints with a very gray palette. You know, there's yeah. there's never anything that's incorruptibly good and there's ever anything that's irredeemably evil. It's easy to both sides a problem until you actually have to come up with an idea of well, okay, well, what should one do? Which is something mm. that I always was wondering on the podcast in the form of like, what is Martin playing at? You know, eventually he will have to pick a narrative side. He will have to promulgate some kind of viewpoint that his main characters will coalesce around, and that attempt will either succeed or fail. And if it fails, then he can continue his moral gray outlook. But it's kind of a bummer of an ending. Um, if it succeeds, well, then he's taken a stand and he said something is absolutely good or absolutely bad, or you know. And I wonder if like that's one of the delays. It's not just. A character, and Marinese not, but more of like, oh, God, I'm going to have to commit to a course of action and a a, a set of ideals or objectives that I'm going to have to rubber stamp as good or else bum out my audience by having it continue to be fl- fruitless and, and this va- vast sea of gray. And, like, that's hard to do. Like um You know, it's like if you're a political commentator and you deal with uh, saying, oh, it's both sides are bad, both sides do this, both sides, and then you get to a place in history where, you know, like your late 20s, early 30s Germany, uh, that's a much harder road to hoe uh, when when suddenly you're trying to both sides and you've got, uh, I don't know, the socialist democratic workers on one side and you've got the National Socialist Party on the other I wonder if Martin's feeling that a little bit too that like hmm as gray as the world really is there's also some bright white lines and some probably dark black lines that we should and should not cross and like ah how can I continue constructing this Machiavellian landscape of grays Mm -hmm. um, without eventually committing to a course of action
0: well, and different moral forks are going to strike us differently depending on how dire the circumstances are. So, like, you mentioned, you know, the the events lead, leading to World War II. Well, if the yeah. Vinoir Republic wasn't starving, like these people were sure. literally starving, you, you make different decisions when you're starving or when your children are starving than you would if everyone's fat and happy, Right. Mm-hmm. So, so Tyrion is an interesting character because right now he's he's pretty fat and happy, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. But he doesn't feel like his life is in any immediate peril. Um, right? Jamie's already experienced moments where he felt like my life or my father's life or the you know the entire population of King's Landing, these people's lives are in peril, and you almost meet a new set of motivations when faced with moral peril than you would otherwise. Um, Mm. Tyrion hasn't done. We're not there with Tyrion yet. Um, Jamie has been forced with the, you know, the burn them all conundrum and he's lived Mm -hmm. to tell about it. And he's decided that he's going to live with the reputation.
4: This is, Is that moral fork a little bit of a cheat because the moral fork is essentially between what we as a modern reader uh, when we're reading Jamie and we're judging like, oh, you know, how am I supposed to be a sworn brother of the knight or of the of the Kingsguard and also allow a towns full of people, a city full of people to die like that's a moral fork for him in his universe because honor means so much. But for a modern reader, the choice is clear. You stab the mad king. You you save the people. You don't let them burn them all. So, like, it's easy to put the character Jamie on a moral fork because there is an objectively right answer from a a modern sensibility. Yet, when you come to dealing with, like, the Night King or electing a new king in Westeros, uh, dealing with some of those thorny issues that... uh, You know, Martin talked a lot of mad shit about Tolkien not, you know, dealing like, you know, what is Aragorn's tax rate? What was his policy for orcs? Was it to kill them all, hunt them down, even the baby orcs? Like, when he goes to answer those questions in his own universe, knowing that his moral readers are going to judge him by that context... And, you know, when you're talking about picking the new king of Westeros, it's going to live forever and ever happy. Now. You, it's those artificial moral forks, I'm going to call them, where they're only artif—they're only moral forks for people in that universe at that time. I wonder if they're harder to construct because and I, and I just wonder if that's one of the reasons that like later seasons of Game of Thrones, the television show, felt increasingly like they were simplistic and weren't much thought given to them. I think those are all true. But I've also always said, as, as much as I judge the, the double Ds for not trying harder, they're also in a pretty bad position.
0: So, I mean, I guess two things can be equally true, right? So, Tyrion, part of what makes Tyrion interesting, the world in which he lives is, is believable. It's vivid. It's, it's a world that we've already kind of, we're already immersed in. I mean, even in Chapter mm-hmm. 9, I feel like I'm living in this world. Um, mm-hmm. and so Martin's really good at world building in that way, so that when Tyrion faces a moral fork in a medieval setting, mm-hmm. we're seeing it through the, his eyes. And so we're experiencing the, the moral fork as he experiences it. That is what the best authors can do. Weiss and Benioff are not nearly as good mm-hmm. at, at, at doing that sort of thing with their characters. And we, we have ample evidence of that.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And what are, what are we really criticizing them for? We're criticizing them for not being one of the best
4: authors of of their generation.
0: You know, that's what, Mar- who's that's what Martin. Who's also struggled.
4: Is. Yes. who's also struggled to finish his own narrative.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Martin. Yeah. So if if we just judge these first couple books, you know, they're they're among the best works of fiction of mm-hmm. any fantasy writer ever. So. Yeah. The fact that Weiss and Benioff couldn't live up to that, I mean, come on. Not surprising. (laughs) Not, Not surprising at all. It's only a kick. A jump.
1: A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this adidas
0: and now this week's bird's eye view for this week's bird's eye view i'd like to talk about metaphorical birds the metaphorical bird's eyes and their views Got a great email from a fellow named Jason, who observed that both Arya and Tyrion get to see parts of their lives played out by actors on stage. For Arya, of course, this leads to her becoming an actor, but Jason suggests that this gives Arya, and maybe Tyrion too, an opportunity to see her world from a different perspective. Jason writes, Arya gets to see her family and the Lannisters in a play created by a third party. And he notes that the third party perspective is really beyond her control. And he asks maybe if Arya and Tyrion both have the opportunity to see these alternative narrations, perhaps giving them a fourth wall superpower. And he also suggests that maybe Varys has learned this lesson along the way. Jason asks, are there any other characters in the books that have this opportunity? Jason, I liked your observation so much that I will expand it a bit. It's certainly true that Arya and Tyrion have a chance to see through the onstage narration. They get to see parts of their lives played out in service to a particular narrative that they don't control. So we agree on that point. This not only enhances their powers of perception, it allows them to become better cynics too. Being a cynic isn't necessarily a virtue, but it can be helpful when navigating propaganda and gaming out politics. So, Jason asks if Orientaria are unique in this regard. My knee jerk reaction is no. Other examples would be anyone who has heard a bard sing stories of recent battles or recent regicides. If your cat you might simply shrug off these musical narrations as propaganda. If you're Joffrey, you might cut out the bard's tongue. Sidebar here, I wonder if Mance Raider's talent as a bard helped him as a politician. My point here is that lots of folks get to hear musical propaganda in Westeros, even if it's not on stage. And that this opportunity to measure third-party narration of one's own world can be important. But what's more important is how the information is received. It takes a special set of ears to hear the difference between parallel narratives. Take Bran's literal bird's eye view in Chapter 8. Bran is hanging outside the broken tower where only birds and Bran go. By the way, remember that the name Bran actually means crow or raven in Welsh. Outside the window, he gets to overhear a different sort of narration. It's a conversation between the Lannister twins, but it functions as an alternative perception of the king. Alternative stories about the king's brothers, about Ned, and about Lisa Arryn. Bran is getting important plot points but doesn't know what to make of them. I wonder what a mind like Varys would have done with this information. And even though Arya isn't much older than Bran, she certainly would have made more of the conversation than Bran could have. It takes more than just opportunity. It takes a set of ears adept at discerning true notes from false notes, and it requires a talent for knowing what to do with the false notes that betray the truth. This is one of the few things that Bran and Joffrey have in common. They're both given opportunities to study alternative narratives, and they both lack the maturity or wisdom to learn from the experience. Eventually, however, Bran may have the opportunity to overhear the conversation again via Greensight. And if that happens, we'll get to see both a literal and a metaphorical bird's-eye view at the same time. So thank you for the question, Jason. If you have a question for me or Aaron or Steve, you can email to book at baldmove.com. And that's all for this week.
4: Next time on Electric Bukaloo. Uh, So like uh, I've been living in the pig farm of my voice for the last few years. So I just don't (laughs) I don't I don't hear how offensive it is anymore.
0: (laughs) You've been wallowing in your own muck.